Welcome to the Emerging Temple broadcast for October 4th, 2019. I'm Michael Obeyer. I'll be your guide for this broadcast. Before we go any further, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel. Hit the notification icon, the bell button at the bottom of your screen, so you can be notified every time we upload new videos. At Emerging Temple, we analyze current events within the context of God's plan for mankind, a plan which he had purposed from the beginning, which was to make and prepare people who would govern with him in a government that he will establish on earth. We have begun uh, to study yesterday the history of empires, the history of the world, and its relevance to those whom God has a plan and a purpose for at this time. Um, we looked at the empires, um, the civilizations that had dominated the world and their consequences on the people of God preparing for the time of Christ. We started off by discussing Tarseti, which we call the first civilization in the world from which Egypt as a civilization came forth. And we saw how Egypt molded the children of Israel who were the carriers of the covenant of God by um, not just the um, harsh treatment and slavery that occurred, to, that occurred to them in Egypt, but also the raising of a man called Moses, whom the scripture says was schooled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he becoming the primary um, founding father, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. And then we saw how Israel grew, became a great kingdom, and at the point in time fell under the control and the dominance of Babylon. Now, before we went into that, we mentioned how Assyria had conquered the part of Egypt that the Israelites lived in, which was, we said, um, lower Egypt, which is in the north, and put them under slavery for over about a hundred years or so. And we said it's ascribed to the Egyptians because the Assyrians had become Egyptians and were now dominating um, Egypt. And we gave scripture for that. So if you didn't see that, please go to look at the video from yesterday so you can see that. And um, the Babylonians took the children of Israel from their land and put them under captivity. And it was a different kind of captivity. It actually transformed um, the Israelites from the people who they were. And um, it is after the Babylonian captivity, for the first time we began to see um, that they had actually lost their original language. Very few of them spoke that language. Very few of them knew their ancestry. We can see that from the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. Well, we see that God was um, angry with the empire of Babylon because of, its, um, it, because of its religious practices and its outright wickedness and overthrew it and established the kingdom of Persia. And we demonstrated that the kingdom of Persia under, its, under its, uh, the empire of Persia, under its um, leaders like Cyrus, Cyrus Ackley or Darius Ackley went and um, re-established the temple of God in Jerusalem, 
saying that he had received a vision from God that he should reestablish the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so we see the role Persia is now playing. After the Persians, the Greeks come, and we see that the Greeks took over. They overthrew the Persians, but they also play another fundamental role in the evolution and the development of the people of Israel. Remember, the people of Israel are acting as kind of like guardians of the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God to our time. And the Greeks, what they do is, as a people who love knowledge, they translate the Bible from the original Paleo-Hebrew into classical Greek. To this day, there is no script in the world that we know that is older than the Greek version of the Bible. Every single version of the Bible you have comes from the original Septuagint, the Greek Bible. That's the oldest Bible known to us today. It came from an older one, no doubt, but nobody has that. So there is nothing that anyone can tell you that comes from a Bible that didn't originally come from the Greeks, the Greeks that ruled Egypt, the Ptolemies, okay? And finally, after the Greeks came the Romans. The Romans are the ones who are road builders, who make networks, who connect the world together and prepare the world for the coming the first coming of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he, through his death, closes the chapter on the physical empires and opens us up and the whole world into a new dimension of reality. And so today, we are dominated not so much by physical empires, but by metaphysical, by spiritual empires. We wrestle no more against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers. And it is important and necessary for us to understand who it is we are actually wrestling against, not against human beings, not against people, but against powers, against thoughts, against doctrines, against ideas that are contrary to God. Friends, before I continue, I forgot to add that please go to patreon.com go to patreon.com and look for our handle, Emerging Temple. That allows you to become a supporter of this program, all right? And please share these videos with your family, with your friends, and everybody that you know, okay? So, all right. So now Jesus has come and has closed the chapter on the old and has opened a new dimension to all mankind. And as he leaves, he gives power to his people and they're led by people called the apostles, okay? And the apostles come, we know about Paul, Peter, James, John, and they bring the doctrine of the gospel, and they begin to spread this knowledge of God. It is no longer limited just to Israel. It is open to all all over the world who would believe in God through faith in Christ. Okay. After about 100 years or so, you know, from about 180 or so, the apostles are gone. And now the church begins to be led by the spirit and it evolves. But there's so much that is opaque about this period after the apostles up until more recently. So that most people who say they believe have no idea what they believe, why they believe, and how they believe. 
they go based on the fact that this is what we've been told, but not much research has been done to explain and to, to make us understand how and why we believe the way we believe. And so that is the purpose of these incursions into history so that it can help us in our walk have more confidence in what it is we have come to believe. Before I go any further, what like I often do, I like to play a little clip and then kind of elaborate on that clip and hopefully that will give you some insight into this topic. Okay, so let's take a look at this um, video clip. If we play here. Story of struggle, persecution, and martyrdom, often at the hands of the ruling government. Yet less than 300 years after the founding of the church, Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity as the official official religion of the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Who was Constantine, and why did he claim to be a Christian? dawn of the fourth century, Constantine began his ascent in both power and prestige. He was proclaimed emperor in AD 306, and by AD 324, he had solidified control over the entire Roman Empire, and in the following year, he called the First Council of Nicaea. This council formally established a number of doctrinal changes that had been adopted in practice over the previous two centuries. The nature of God and the celebration of Easter were two key items on the agenda. It was Constantine's prior signing of the Edict of Milan that eventually brought peace after more than two centuries of religious persecution. To understand the scope of this change in philosophy, we must first look back to the beginning in the first century. The persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire started under the rule of Emperor Nero. More than 200 years later, by the end of the third century, rank persecution of Christians had become commonplace throughout the empire. Christians who refused to recant their faith and worship both the emperor and Roman pagan gods were tortured and killed. In the mid-third century, under the rule of Decius, an edict was issued that forced those claiming to be Christians to either worship Roman gods or face execution. Decius's religious campaign was intended to restore the empire to its former glory by uniting everyone under their ancestral religion. How then did Roman society's opinion of Christianity change so significantly to culminate in Constantine's adopting the religion? The answer to this lies in the vast changes that took place in Christian practices between the first and fourth century. Over time, the leaders of the church began accepting or at least tolerating new doctrine. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria left a vast body of work that according to Justo L. Gonzalez in volume one of the story of Christianity, Clement uses the Greek doctrine of Logos to call Christians to be open to truth and philosophy. The second century Bishop of Rome, later known as Pope Victor I, is well known for the Court of Decimon controversy, where he pushed for the excommunication of Christians who kept Passover as opposed to the adopted pagan fertility festival held on Sunday, later known as Easter. Victor sent out a letter to be distributed among all the Christian churches where he warned that the Lord's resurrection from the dead should be celebrated on no other day than on Sunday. 
In response to this instruction, Polycrates, the Bishop of Smyrna, wrote that he kept the Passover on the 14th of the month according to the Gospel, without deviating from, but following the rule of faith. Threats do not frighten me, for greater ones than I have said God must be obeyed rather than men. Tertullian of Carthage was an early Christian author around the turn of the third century. He was influenced by Stoic philosophy, and it was his writings on the concept of God being a trinity that eventually became the hallmark of orthodoxy. The Christian faith underwent a dramatic transformation, adopting pagan practices and symbolism such as that of the ancient Egyptian symbol of life, which was used to picture the cross. The religion had changed so much that by the time Constantine ordered his soldiers to use this symbol on their shield on the eve of the Battle of Milvian Bridge in AD 312, Christianity had become fully immersed in pagan practices and traditions. Having been raised as a pagan devotee of the unconquered sun, Constantine's adoption of the transformed Christian faith effectively blended his ancestral pagan religion with what Christianity had become. Constantine seems to have thought that the unconquered son and the Christian God were compatible, perhaps two views of the same supreme deity. On March 7, 8321, Constantine declared that, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest, and let all workshops be closed. Sunday worship, as opposed to Sabbath day observance, was later canonized by the Council of Laodicea in 8363. It was Constantine who gave the stamp of approval for all the transformation that took place between the first and fourth centuries. Unlike Decius, who sought to unite the empire under paganism, Constantine managed to unite the empire under the guise of Christianity. He effectively set the stage for all the faux Christian practices you see emanating from Rome today. Dr. William Durant wrote in volume three of the story of civilization, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. From Egypt came the ideas of a divine trinity, personal immortality of reward and punishment, the adoration of mother and child. Christianity was the last great creation of the ancient pagan world. If you have ever wondered why the Catholic Church and the Protestant offshoots observe religious events and practices that are not found in the Bible, then you only need to look to Constantine and the steady adoption of pagan idolatry to find the source. I'm Jonathan Riley for Tomorrow's World Viewpoint. Okay. Now, this video clip we just watched gives you a general idea that there was like a 200-year, you know, gap or space between the end of the apostles and the establishment of Constantine's, Emperor Constantine's church. And in between this period of time, we have what is often referred to as the church fathers. He mentioned some men there, Clement of Alexandria. You didn't mention Augustine of Hippo. Um, I think you mentioned Tertullian of um, Carthage, okay? These men, we don't hold them to the esteem of the apostles in any way. But to one degree or another, these are the leaders of the church at this time until Constantine comes and as emperor of Rome takes control of the church and all other religions under his empire and establishes the Orthodox church. Now, 
it's not everything that we just heard in the video that just played that I subscribe to. So just to be clear, I don't subscribe to everything there, okay? But what I wanted us to take note of was that that was a good um, clip showing us the transition, the, the period from 100 AD till about 320 AD when there was no official church. There was no official church, okay? The official church, what I mean by official means a church recognized by the state, recognized by the government. That doesn't come to be for at least 200 years after the apostles have gone, okay? And so let's look at something I put together for us to kind of elaborate better on these points, okay? Okay, so after the time of Christ, you have the apostles, okay? Um, John, James, Paul, Peter, and we have their writings to this day, and we know that their words are inspired by God because the scriptures itself tell us that their writings were inspired by God. So here you see, it says, the apostles of Jesus Christ began to spread the message of a coming government to be established by God. Let me pull this up a little bit here. Good. Be, uh, to be established, a coming government, no, sorry, it is important for us to use the word government instead of kingdom, because in our time, the meaning of the word kingdom does not connote the same meaning it did during the time of the apostles. So during the time of the apostles, to say the kingdom of God is coming was to claim that you are going to remove the emperor you are going to remove the king of, you know, whatever, and, you know, bring in a new kingdom. It, when you and I hear it today, it sounds remote. But if we use today the term government, then you understand that there is coming a government from God to replace every government that exists today in this world. Okay? Every government. There's a new government that is going to be established. And that is the government that you and I are trying to prepare ourselves to be ready for. Okay, so let's continue the next paragraph. It says, by the beginning of the second century AD, all that's about 100 years after Christ, all the apostles had slept in Christ. However, the gospel had taken root in North and East Africa deeper than in other places. So this is where you'll find people like Clement of Alexandria, that's in Egypt. Um, Augustine of Hippo, that's in Tunisia. Um, Tertullian of Carthage, of, of Carthage, also in Tunisia. And others. So there isn't an official church, but there's more freedom in this part of the world for people to study it, to begin to try to understand the doctrine of Christ. And that's where we read about people who even up into places like um, Syria, we have people like um, 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 oh, Polycarp, okay? There's so many of them, okay? And these people are trying to study God, trying to know, you know, they're bringing doctrines. Many of them make mistakes here and there, but the intention is, is all right, okay? Okay, so... 
during this period, before the time of Constantine, the Christian faith has more roots in Africa, North Africa and East Africa. That is the areas of like Somalia, Ethiopia, Egypt, um, and so on. Okay. In fact, um, second sen uh, sentence in the second paragraph, it said, in fact, the Christian faith was persecuted everywhere except in Africa. For this reason, we have a flourishing of post-apostolic Christian doctrine coming out mostly from Africa, as exemplified by men such as Augustine of Hippo and Clement of Alexandria. It is important to point out that there is no evidence that Peter the Apostle of Christ was ever in Rome, even though popular mythology says that he was crucified in Rome. There simply is no evidence of this. In fact, Rome does not feature as a major port of the Christian faith until the fourth century AD with the enthronement of Constantine as emperor of Rome. Prior to this period, most Christians in Rome lived in fear and seclusion. Before we, we, we look into the schism of 1054, I want us to watch briefly another clip, okay? According to Islamic this is where the Prophet Muhammad was taken on the night journey by the angel Gabriel, where he led the other prophets in prayer and met with God. Jerusalem was the Muslims' third holiest city after Mecca and Medina. But at the beginning of the 7th century, Jerusalem, like Damascus, was ruled by the Byzantines. As Christians, they considered it to be their holiest of cities, at its sacred heart, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, we are in the front of the Holy Sepulchre, and according to Christianity, uh, Jesus Christ was crucified and buried here, inside here, in the middle of Jerusalem. the Arab Muslim forces arrived at the city's walls. And as the Byzantine forces had already been routed from Damascus, Jerusalem couldn't rely on any military backup. Although Jerusalem held out for four months, its ruler, the Patriarch Sophronius, knew that his city's fate was sealed and decided to surrender. Sophronius had taken a huge gamble happened to the Christian's most important city once it was claimed by a force that also held it so sacred. Omar ibn al-Khattab came to the Holy Sepulchre because the Patriarch wanted to show him the church. Then it was the time for Muslim prayer and he wanted to pray so the Patriarch asked him to pray inside the church and he refused. He refused because 
he told him that in the future, uh, the, the Muslims will start saying that Umar ibn al-Khattab prayed here, and then they will claim the place and they will change the church to, uh, to mosque. Recognizing the importance of the church to Christians, the Muslim spiritual and political leader, the Caliph Omar, decided to find another location to pray, finding his own place of worship within just a few yards of the Holy Sepulchre, establishing the mosque that today bears his name. Muslims were now in possession of one of their holiest cities, and they could set about celebrating the location where the Prophet Muhammad was taken on the night journey. Today, marked by the oldest surviving Islamic monument in the world, the Dome of the Rock. Okay, friends, there's some things I want to clarify, and this is really important before I go any further. The clip I just played spoke about the Islamic or Muslim invasion of Jerusalem in 637, it says. It talks about this caliph called Umar and um, how he was an honorable man and, you know, met with the bishop there, wouldn't pray in the church, etc. You know, all this might be true. I have no evidence to the contrary, but there's only one thing I want to point out. By this time, there was no Muslim army big enough to conquer Jerusalem. There was an Arab army that did conquer Jerusalem. We need to make a distinction, just for the record, the reason I want this to be on record is because in the future, as we go deeper into our studies, somebody's going to remember this time and say, we said that the Muslims conquered Jerusalem in 637 AD. We didn't say that. That video clip said that. What we do agree is that Arabs conquered Jerusalem about that time. And there's a reason why we need to make the distinction. Okay? But that's just you know, by the by. Now, why did we play this clip? What was the purpose of this clip, okay? The purpose of this clip was to show you that, say 300 years or so after Constantine, the empire which he controlled was now being um, attacked by other forces from different parts of the world. And this would have consequences on the decisions that the church, the bishops of the different churches, like the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Alexandria, the Bishop of Constantinople, what decisions that they would make or they, they would take, and what would end up leading to what is called the Great Schism. Okay? So let's find out what the Great Schism was. Okay, after Constantine adopted Christianity as a state religion of the Roman Empire, many Christians were faced with the choice of adopting this new government, this new government brand of Christianity, or continue being persecuted as heretics and enemies of the emperor. 
Many refused to accept the state-sponsored religion and went into hiding. The new Christian religion adopted all the previous underground churches that were willing to accept the amnesty offered by Emperor Constantine. This new, quote, church was known as the Orthodox Church. It had its headquarters in a city called Constantinople, named after Constantine. Today, that city is called Istanbul, eh? in the capital, somewhere in Turkey. Okay. It had, this church had five primary bishops who reported to Emperor Constantine. They included the bishops of Alexandria, Egypt, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and of course, Constantinople, the capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, um, 600 years after Emperor Constantine died, which is roughly 300 years after the video clip you and I just watched about the Arabs who invaded Jerusalem, okay? 600 years after Emperor Constantine died, the Bishop of Rome, one of those five bishops, remember there were five bishops, all equal, under the emperor, okay? If any one of them was first among equals, it was actually the Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, and you can, you, you can check that out, okay? The Bishop of Rome split off from the other four bishops and declared himself the head of the church. At the time, the others declared him an apostate. This Bishop of Rome of 1054 can rightly be called the founder of what? The Catholic Church. This is true church history that is available in any Catholic seminary. Okay? So what, what does this mean? It means the Catholic Church was founded in 1054 AD in something we call the Great Schism of 1054. You can go look this up. Okay? Now, So this goes on. The church splits into two now. You now have what's called Orthodox. You now have what is called Catholic, okay? And this starts from like 1054, and it goes on till about the 15th century. And so let's see something about, let's watch this last clip, okay? Let's watch this last clip that will prepare us. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century shook the very foundation of Europe's cultural identity. The Reformation was a revolution of religion in Western Europe. Essentially, it was the result of centuries worth of political of political and social grievances against the Christian Church as it existed. Christianity, which began as a fledgling religion in the first century, had grown by the 13th century into an institution powerful enough to rival state governments. For instance, the Pope, then the leader of the Christian Church, had greater political and military influence than some emperors and kings. 
This tension was exacerbated by the transformative social and intellectual period known as the Renaissance. In particular, this period involved the rise of humanism, a philosophy that shifted man's fate from being determined by religious doctrine to being determined by man himself. Additionally, some within the church believed it had become increasingly corrupt. Priests like John Wycliffe of England and Jan Hus of Bohemia challenged the church's teachings, which they believed had strayed away from the Bible. However, one of the most well-known advocates for a reformed Christian church was a German priest named Martin Luther. Martin Luther began to question the church in the early 1500s. He believed it was abusing its power and disagreed with some of its practices. For instance, he challenged the church's doctrine that stated the Pope, not the Bible, was the ultimate spiritual authority. Plus, he criticized the church for selling indulgences, the practice of purchasing forgiveness for one's sins by giving money to the church. Luther believed the church needed to revise its doctrine by returning to the Bible's teachings and by saying that salvation could be granted by faith in Christ alone. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther took a stand. In what's considered the birth of the Protestant Reformation, Luther is said to have nailed 95 theses, or arguments against the church, onto the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther was later put on trial in front of church officials to defend his theses, but in January 1521, the church declared Luther a heretic and excommunicated him. While Luther's membership with the church ended, the reformation he argued for started to gain momentum. Unlike Luther's predecessors who challenged the church, Luther had one tool at his disposal that they didn't have, the printing press. This new invention allowed his arguments to be copied and spread across Europe. This unprecedented access to ideas such as Luther's inspired many others to challenge the church, thereby splitting Christianity into two major denominations, Catholic and Protestant, from the word protest. Also, the Bible became more accessible. Luther and other reformists translated biblical text from Latin, which was only known by nobility and church officials, to German, English, and French, languages spoken by the general public. While the Protestant Reformation revolutionized the Christian faith, it had ramifications that extended beyond religion. Prior to the Reformation, many Europeans were dependent on an educated upper class. But perhaps the most resounding impact of the Reformation was that the common people were empowered to question religion and other aspects of life. The Reformation, along with technological innovations and the introduction of other new ideas, gave many in Europe's general public the freedom and power to decide their own fates. Okay, so you're seeing the evolution of the church coming down to our time, okay? You're seeing the transformation of people as the church itself is transformed. And as we go further, you are going to discover that 
there are other forces playing around the church, outside of the church, that are also influencing the things of the church. Hold on to the main difference between what is happening now, what is happening in these things we're reading, these things you're studying about Constantine, about Luther, about the popes. Hold on to the most important difference between this and all those empires we read about, we, we talked about yesterday. Those wanted to control you, control you physically. These want to control you spiritually. They want to control you mentally. They want to control what you believe. They want to control what you think. They want to control how you see. It's a metaphysical kingdom. Okay? All right. Now, let's, let's read our perspective on the Protestant Reformation, okay? Why it came to be. What were the forces happening that caused that Reformation and how it actually ended up spurring the great leap into modernity of the Western nations or the Western church compared to the Eastern church, okay? All right. Something that wasn't mentioned in the clip we just saw before, but must be mentioned, is that, let's read this paragraph. It says, the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus in 1492 triggered, and now 1492, we're talking about shortly before Luther. Luther is like, you know, he's doing what he's doing like 1520 or thereabouts, right? Columbus had just discovered America about 30 years earlier. And the discovery of America for Western Europe had a great impact and consequence on the social and religious life of Western Europe. This, this is very important, okay? And we're going we're gonna to discover this. So the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus in 1492 triggered social, economic, and political changes in the Western church. By this period, the Eastern and Western church had fully sev severed their relationship, except their common contempt for their common nemesis, the Muslims. Western Europe was an agrarian economy in which landlords owned all the land and permitted the poor serfs to live on it and work the land. However, with the discovery of America, most landlords wanted to invest their money not into agriculture, but into trading of commodities from the new world, America. Bananas, gold, tobacco. They were going to make more money as traders than as what they had been for centuries, landlords, where serfs worked the land, gave them the harvest, and they gave the serfs a little to eat to survive for the year until they had to come back to work next year, okay? Let's continue. The problem was that since they owned all the land, that's the landlords, they didn't need the serfs on it anymore. They began to influence the kings to legislate laws that herded the common people into spaces they called commons. This caused hunger and resentment. The popes tended to support the cries of the people 
as their legitimacy, the legitimacy of the popes depended on the people believing that they represented God. However, the landlords pushed back against the popes and take note of this word, protested. The word Protestant doesn't have anything to do with religion. It's the coincidence of these men, these powerful men protesting the change that the Pope was getting the kings to do against the landlords that caused them to protest. And coincidentally, at the same time, there was a rebel Catholic priest called Martin Luther who was confronting the church based on biblical doctrine. I want you to follow this, okay? There's a convergence of interests between the landlords, the wealthy of Germany, and this Catholic priest and his followers. And they come to him and they back him and they begin what we call the Lutheran church, okay? So let's let me start again. However, the landlords pushed back against the popes and protested against the king who had already promised them that they could evict the serfs. Two countries in particular would have a convergence of religious opposition to the Pope and a need for social opposition to the Pope as well. These were England under Henry VIII and Germany during Martin Luther. Henry used the fact that the Pope would not allow him divorce the daughter of the King of Spain, who was the Pope's friend, to establish his own church, the Anglican Church. In America, it's called the Episcopal Church. He killed all the bishops in England who opposed him. Next paragraph. At the same time in Germany, same period, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who felt that the church was corrupt and that it was operating contrary to biblical doctrine. The German landlords decided to rally around Luther as they both had a common enemy, the Pope. These protesting landlords are whom we, deliver, we derive the name Protestant from. They were actually protesting land reform, not biblical doctrine like Martin Luther was. Nevertheless, from these two countries, spread, the spread of evangelical Christianity as we know it today began. Okay, friends, from Martin Luther, the Protestant movement, and all the others that came out of it, we go in, we come into um, the, the pilgrims who were English, um, quote, Protestants, who flee from England to Amsterdam, to Holland. And when there's a new king in Holland, they're expelled from Holland. They have nowhere to run to. So they come to America. We call them the pilgrims. And they land, in, according to mythology, in Plymouth Rock, somewhere in Massachusetts. Okay, I wouldn't say mythology, but according to popular history. Okay. And they settle in America and they bring, they come to a place where they, they're now free to practice their religion because they're being persecuted in Europe. And these people are the ones that bring this idea of freedom to America. 
okay? So America is centered and founded upon this concept, this idea of freedom, okay? And the right and dignity of the individual. But where does it come from? It comes from people's understanding of their faith in God through Christ. That's where it all comes from, okay? And these people form the country, form the culture of what later on becomes the United States of America, okay? This is important. And from this country called the United States of America, we begin to find a home for other Protestant movements that are still in Europe like the Methodists, the Baptists, or the Anabaptists. And they all come to America. Everybody coming here to, for the freedom of their religion, to practice their religion. Now, there are things that are done to Native peoples that are not Christian. There are people who are brought in from other parts of the world as or Africa as slaves. That's not Christian. But the first people who came here with the ideas didn't participate in any of that, okay? Their descendants might have, but those who came, okay? And their descendants are reaping the benefits of what those people achieved. Just the way those people received the benefits of what all the earlier people we've spoken about achieved. And it comes down to our time. But what are we doing with our own time. What will be written about us and what will history say we did during our time? You know, friends, I've taken this time to talk to us using history as a sort of um, witness for God. You don't need history. You have the word of God in front of you. But I've given this as a supplement, not as a replacement for the word of God, but as a supplement so that you can take from these teachings and go research yourself and understand all that God has done for us to bring us to where we are. And today, the Antichrist has come and is working to compromise us. But we want to help you, and but we need you to help us. As I sign out right now, I want to remind you to share these videos, this video and other videos that we make with your friends and your family, to subscribe to our channel, to like the videos, and to support us. You can support us by going to our website, www.templeoftruth.us, or by going to patreon.com, looking for our handle called Emerging Temple, and supporting us through that. So friends, thank you for your time. I hope you've benefited something from this. Um, look for us on Facebook, uh, Emerging Temple at Facebook. If you have any questions, send it through Facebook, send it through the YouTube page. Um, if there's any, um, this was really short to remember. We couldn't go into a lot of details. So if you see any holes here, probably if you send a message, send an email, we'll be able to try to plug it for you. Okay. Thank you very much and God bless you.